Welcome back to Musings on Faith, a podcast from St. George Episcopal Church in the Villages, Florida. This month, our series focuses on getting to know the Episcopal Church. I am Marianne DeSantis, a parishioner at St. George and your host. Today, I am talking with the Reverend John Kelly about what visitors can expect from an Episcopal worship service. Father John has served as rector at St. George since September 2014. A native of upstate New York, he was ordained to the priesthood in 1987 and has since served in a variety of settings in both New York and in Pennsylvania before coming to Florida. Thank you, Father John, for participating in our Getting to Know the Episcopal Church series. I'd like to talk to you about the Episcopal service. I remember my first visit to an Episcopal church, and it was quite different from the Protestant church where I grew up. For a first-time visitor or newcomer, the Episcopal service can be confusing. Please tell our listeners what they can expect that might be different from other denominations. Okay, well first, thank you for having me here, Marianne. I think people who fall in love with the Episcopal Church are first attracted to the fact that it is the liturgy, which is the prayer of the people. And what might first be a little scary to people is the fact that they're finding out that they're going to have to maybe juggle more books than they what might be used to. And so you find out that they're using what is a wonderful book and resource, the Book of Common Prayer, but they're also juggling that and a hymnal. But to really understand it, you have to go back to the whole purpose of what worship is, which is you're there to glorify God, you're there to thank God, you're there to experience the holiness of God. And so if you go to the Episcopal Church, you have a real sense of the grandeur of worship, and worship is your ascribing worth. And so with my wife Tish, I'm always, I'm hoping I'm always ascribing worth to Tish. And so if you're walking into an Episcopal church, you're carrying or, or you're getting used to the Book of Common Prayer, but you're there to ascribe worth to God. And what it makes difference for us is the first part of what is our liturgy is you're having what would have been back in the day a traditional Jewish service in that first century, which would have been that synagogue service on Saturday, which was the readings and what it would have been a meditation or a sermon by the rabbi. But then we're also celebrating what would have happened on Sunday. And so first century Christian Jews would have been on a synagogue service on Saturday. But then on Sunday, they gathered for an agape meal and the Eucharist. What we're doing is we're celebrating that first part of the service, what we call the Liturgy of the Word. But what is distinctly different about us and other Protestant denominations is we are every Sunday celebrating the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And that is so important to us because Jesus instituted two sacraments, two chief sacraments, which are the Holy Eucharist and Baptism. And the Holy Eucharist is the only service of worship that Jesus instituted. And that's why we celebrate that every week. And many Protestant denominations don't do that, but a lot of people will walk in and they'll go, my gosh, why are they doing that every week? Well, we, we do that because Jesus instituted it and the early church celebrated it 
every week. Describe the roles of the clergy in this service. Tell us what each, I know we have quite a few. Sure. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, the interesting thing is on Sunday, people say to me, oh, you've got a lot of clergy up at the altar. Well, we don't have as many as we could. <laughs> <laughs> because actually the lead person for uh, a typical Episcopal service would be the bishop. And it's always wonderful when our bishop is there because the bishop is the chief celebrant. And so if the bishop is president, then he's the leader. And Episcopal Church, Episcopal is the Greek term for bishop. And so if the bishop is president, then the priest is going to step back and let the bishop do anything. So, um, for instance, if I'm celebrating a baptism, I'm celebrating a baptism on behalf of the bishop. And then that's why we have confirmation. Confirmation is to confirm that, that baptism. But then again, uh, the bishop is there for the confirmation because he's confirming that baptism that, took part, that, that, that happened when the priest performed it. So the priest, you have the priest representing Christ and the church, but the priest is always sharing the ministry with the bishop. And the priest is the chief shepherd and pastor of the people. And so the priest is uh, proclaiming the gospel, preaching, declaring pardon. And then you have the deacon. And the deacon is there, and that person's chief ministry is to care for the poor, outreach and community. And that's why that's so important as to why then the deacon is reading the gospel because he or she is proclaiming the gospel. And so when the gospel, what I always think is so cool, I always love it, when you know the deacon goes out into the middle of the congregation they're doing it because that's a symbolic way of saying that the deacon is proclaiming the gospel in the world. And so the deacon is going out into to the people, which is such a powerful moment. The deacon sets the table because that's a way for the deacon to say that he or she is the servant of all. And those are the chief clergy roles in, in the service. We talked uh, once about vergers. You know, what yes. is a verger? Yeah, and, and, certainly. Uh, well, we all love the vergers, and we have a great verger, uh, Bob. And Bob hadn't been, hasn't been able to serve as much as he had in the past because of the of the coronavirus. But vergers are probably more traditional in the English church, and we're uh, the Episcopal Church is the Anglican Church, the Church of England in, in America. And the verger was very important in the English church in around the 12th century in London and uh, the cathedral in Rochester and Canterbury Cathedral. Uh, and we kind of kid around a bit because back, back in the day, vergers carry these big sticks. And you've heard me say this before, that the, one of the chief roles of the verger back then was to carry that big stick and make sure the dogs were getting out of the way in the cathedral <laughs> because there weren't any pews or whatever dogs would creep in and there was a verger they carried a big stick but chiefly what they do now is they prepare the liturgy and they make sure everything is in place and they're called the protector of the procession and so when we have these big feasts like easter or christmas if there's an ordination at the cathedral the verger is there just to make sure everyone is in line and 
our verger in our diocese has a big booming voice. He has a lot of authority. And he will even tell the bishop, you're out of line. Get in line. <laughs> and that's an important job for the verger. They just make sure that we're all in place, like on Christmas Eve, that everyone's there where, they, where they're supposed to be, even the rector. They maintain the building. They have a very practical point. When we have a memorial service, Bob will be there. He'll talk to the family, let the family know where they need to be. He'll get them to, to from uh, the parish hall to the church. If they're reading lessons, he'll help lead them up to the lectern, which makes it a lot easier for them. So they are helped just to take some of the pressure off, off of me, uh, Father Ed, the deacons, just to make it easier so the services run a lot smoother. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, what about, uh, I know we have a lot of lay people that we do. have different roles in the services. Uh, can you tell us some of what those roles are? Mm -hmm. okay. Well, a lot of them uh, work behind the scene, and so we might not know, uh, the typical parishioner or visitor may not know what they're doing, and they're, they're real sort of ministers in the church. For instance, uh, our altar guild, and most every Episcopal church has an altar guild, and they might be forgotten, but they're the ones that are really making sure the church looks really beautiful. And so they're, they're a group of parishioners, and what they're doing is they're preparing the altar for every service. And so that means that we have beautiful silver chalices, and they're making sure the chalices, yes, the chalices make, Shine. is, is shining. <laughs> it looks good. And they're getting the, the bread and the wine set up for the, for the altar, and Again, we're dealing with COVID right now, and so that means they need to prepare things in a certain way, and they also need to make sure that everything is prepared in a in a sanitary way. So it's a little bit of uh, work, more work than it is ordinarily for them. They're uh, maintaining the furnishings, um, the vestments, and during the liturgical season, they've got to make sure things are changed with the right kinds of vestments, the right kind of colors and all that. Um, well then, um, a little more up front, we have the ushers. They're, they have an important part to play as they're welcoming people. They're handing out the bulletins, collecting the offering. Um, we have, see, there's all, all these oh, wonderful things, see? Yes, everybody can be involved, <laughs> everything. And you, you mentioned vestments. Vestments, right. what are, um, what is the significance of the, vestiment, the different vestments? You know, I know we sure. have a stall. Right. And... Well, you know, you know um, this is the thing. It's, it's, I was thinking about this. It's a bit like when you're in the military and everything a military officer wears has a, has a particular purpose and everything a military officer does has a certain reason. Like when you, when you read about the soldiers that are there with the, uh, the unknown soldier, everything they do has, has a reason. And it's the same way with us. So for instance, um, we wear a cassock elb, which is the long white garment, and it was based on Roman dress. It hasn't changed all that much, but when we put on our white robe, we know it signifies the righteousness of Christ, and, and it's white, so it reminds us of the purity of Christ. Um, Father Ed and I wear a long white, uh, long stole, or the other priests do too, or it could be different colors, but the stole is a long piece of cloth. It looks like a scarf, and that stole has its origins in, uh, in the Jewish rabbinic tradition. So it reminds us of a prayer shawl 
but it's symbolic of the spiritual authority of a priest and signifies the priesthood, but you're always going to wear it in whatever priestly function you might be involved in, whether you're celebrating a Holy Eucharist, uh, hearing a confession. Uh, we all carry a little one if we're going to the hospital or going to be anointing someone with oil for the sick. Um, we wear a chasuble. You know, that chasuble is that long uh, uh, covering we wear before we go to the Holy Eucharist. And that's a, that's a covering that represents the charity that's required by uh, every priest in their, in their function. The, the deacons wear something that's like a stole, but it's, it's worn sideways. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, worn, um, it's worn sideways, and yet it's, it reminds them of how Jesus um, raised his garments when he washed uh, the disciples' feet on, on, at the Last Supper. So every one of them has just a sort of symbolism, I think, that is really wonderful, and people might not really be, be aware of it, and hopefully we remind ourselves of that too, that it isn't something that says you're special, right? It just reminds you that you have a, have a job of service and you are, above all, serving Jesus Christ. Which is what we're supposed to do. Yeah, which absolutely. Is what we're supposed to do. Certainly. Uh, I want to switch a little bit and talk about when we, uh, we not only do we sit, but we stand and we kneel. Right, uh, talk about a little bit about sure. when, when should we kneel and when should we stand? Oh, yes. Well, that's, I think that's one of the things we're talking about. What do people find different in the Episcopal Church? Because so many parishioners and new parishioners will say, why are you on earth doing all of that? And uh, one phrase I, I heard is, um, we sit for instruction, we kneel for prayer, and we stand for praise. And in the early church, and for the early church and for Jews, Kneeling has always been an act of submission. And so, for instance, on the battlefield, people always knelt as a sign of, of surrender. And that's what we're doing during the Holy Eucharist. We're kneeling there because it's a sign of our sacrifice and it's a time of prayer. And I know for myself that when I'm kneeling, there's just that, you know, our bodies talk to us. And that's how it is for me. So when I'm kneeling and I'm praying, automatically there's that sense of surrender. Standing is such a powerful thing. So when I'm standing for the gospel, and I was just talking to Jennifer about this, there's this power when you're standing because it's a wonderful moment. You are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And you're hearing Jesus speak. And so it is a way of, of just saying, I am honoring you, Lord. And I was thinking to myself, of this great story of when King George first heard the Hallelujah Chorus, he was so moved by awe, he had to stand. And every, ever since then, everyone stands when they hear the Hallelujah <laughs> Chorus because they're so moved by awe. And that's how I feel every time I see one of our deacons step down and read the Gospel. There's times you just have to stand. And that's why... We wait until those candles are doused because we are just standing in awe and we don't leave until those candles are doused mm -hmm. because we have sung that final hymn in glory of God. Until those candles are doused, we're still praising the Lord. 
Well, I think on that note, we that's a, a great ending for us with the, the end of the service. Uh, I want to thank you, Father John. Listeners, please email your questions and comments to musingsonfaith at gmail.com. We will answer your questions on our website or in future podcasts. Thank you.